as always, thank you for tuning in today to our Wednesday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we will be continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Samuel. Chapter 7. Now, uh, this chapter is interesting in many different ways, but for one, we get to see the threefold uh, ministry of Samuel. We get to see him as a prophet, as a priest, and also as a judge, and that is the threefold ministry of Samuel. He's doing all those things, and we see him doing all those things here in this chapter. Um, and so here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, now it, just a, a quick little recap. So the Philistines capture the ark, they get all sorts of tumors, that's a very nice way of saying it, uh, and all sorts of horrible things come their way, and so they realize that they're getting judged, and so they want to send the ark back uh, to Israel, and so they basically said, okay, this is how we're going to know, it's, it, this, is, this judgment's really from God, we'll take two cows and take away their calves and hook them up to a yoke and, and put a cart on it uh, on them, and then we'll put the ark on that, and we'll send them on their way, and if they make their way to Israel, Beth Shemesh, then we know it's God, and if they kind of like instead go after their calves that have been taken away from them, we know that this was just, you know, coincidence or whatever. And so they let it go, and it goes to Beth Shemesh, and, and once they get to Beth Shemesh, which is a Levitical city, um, the Levites show up, and they don't handle the ark properly, and because of that, they sacrifice cows, which we know in Leviticus that you're only supposed to sacrifice um, uh, male oxen, not cows, not female uh, oxen, and so um, they did that wrong. They set the ark on a, on a, on a rock. They shouldn't have done that. Um, they uh, should have covered the ark. It wasn't covered, and so and then they look into the ark, and God said, that's a big no-no, and so uh, his judgment goes out. Many people die, and so they're kind of going, okay, we want nothing to do with it, and so they send the ark to uh, Kirjath um, Jerem, so uh, instead of Beth Shemesh. and so it says in verse 1, then the men of Kirjath Jerem came, took the ark of the Lord, brought into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, um, Kirjath Jerem or Jerem is not a Levitical city. Okay, so there are those of the persuasion that says, well, there wouldn't be any priests there. Well, just because it's a Levitical city doesn't necessarily mean there wouldn't be a priest there. And so, um, and so this town is about six miles northeast of Beth Shemesh. Uh, and so Eleazar is the one that's consecrated to keep the Ark of the Lord. Uh, Eleazar is, is kind of a priestly name. So that's where we're kind of confused in the way of going, well, it's not a Levit- Levitical city. Well, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a priest of God that resides there. Um, and so... Eleazar was the name of one of Aaron's sons, so it's quite possibly this family is from the line of priests, since families have a tendency to name their own sons after family members of their past. In Exodus 28, we're told that Aaron's sons, the priest line from Aaron, had to be consecrated in order to be minister to God. And so there's a, a specific uh, cleansing and things that need to take place. So th- since this name is after the son of Aaron, a priest, and he was consecrated to serve God, most likely he was from possibly the line of Aaron. So, so there is some sort of priestly line there in Kiriath, uh, or Kurath uh, Jerem. But there's something else very interesting about 
this city. It was one of the city of the Gibeonites. Um, if you recall, those are the guys that tricked Joshua when he was coming into the land. They saw what he was doing. They saw how he destroyed Jericho, that their God was real powerful. So they dressed up in rags and got moldy bread and made it look like they came from a great distance. And, and so make a covenant with us. And, and so he does not realizing that they were part of the inhabitants in the land that God told them that he needed to get rid of. And so because of that, they couldn't kill him at that point because they made a covenant with them. And so instead he says, you're going to be the servants to us. You're going to get water, cut wood, things like that. So you're going to serve us. And they're saying, so long as we don't have to die, that's fine. So this is a, and you need to write this down, a Gentile city. This is a Gentile city. The majority of people here are Gentiles. It doesn't mean that there isn't a, a Jewish influence there, which I believe is which is one of the reasons why this person is consecrated to take, uh, take care of the ark of the Lord. And the ark of the Lord is the presence of God. That's the physical presence of God here on this earth is there on the ark of the covenant. He dwells between the cherubim, it tells us. And so when you have the ark of the covenant, you have the presence of God. And so this is a, a Gentile city, predominantly a Gentile city. Now, it's interesting to me, that God's wrath is poured out on Israel and, and, and its leadership for not properly take care of the ark like is told too much is given, much is required. Um, and so the very first thing they do because of God's wrath is they reject God. Said, okay, then we don't want you. We don't want this presence with us. And so they kind of reject God right there. It's interesting to me that if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have David, who is now going to transport the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And so, we have in verse 1 again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose when all the people were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from the ark of God, whose name is called by the name. And the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim, right there. He dwells between the cherubim. And so they set the ark of God on a new cart. Now here's the deal. You're not supposed to put the ark of God on a cart. Okay? You have poles. You loop it through the, uh, uh, the brass rings that are on the side. You have Levitical priests who carry it. And they carry it on their shoulders. And that's how you transport the ark. And God's word makes that very, 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 very clear. So here you have some people picking up the ark like it's just some hunk of furniture and not giving one whit of what it is that God said on how things are supposed to be transported. So they throw it on a cart. Now it's interesting because people say, well, they threw it on a cart here and the Philistines threw it on a cart and they didn't get judged for that. Well, too much is given, much is required. The Philistines didn't know how to carry it. So God doesn't judge them for what they don't know. I would say that that's a uh, principle of God, by the way. He doesn't judge you for what you don't know. But I'm here to tell you, when you're, if, if, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're being judged by him, you won't be able to say, I didn't know, because he'll be able to roll the film and show you how you did know. You know, I honestly believe that it's just one big theater up there in heaven for those who are coming into the judgment of the great white throne judgment. I, I didn't know. Roll the tape, exhibit X, B, and 
All of a sudden, you're there in third grade as someone's witnessing to you. Roll, and there you are in high school, you're being witnessed to. There you are making fun in college to other Christians. And here you are when you're older. And boom, 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 just one after another. People just unconditionally loving you one after another. I didn't know, really. Let the tape show, (laughs) you know. And it's a huge courtroom is what it is. And so here, they're carrying the ark on a cart. And it says, so the ark of... So they set the ark of God on a new cart, like that matters because it's a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzziah in Ohio, not the state. The sons of Abinadab drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord, all kinds of instruments of fir wood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines on cistrums and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God to hold it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him to the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, Gentile. Interesting. Outbreak of wrath and boom, it goes into Gentile occupation again. And it says, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. I find it amazing that both outbreaks of, of wrath of God, because to whom much is given, much is required, they aren't doing it right, that they reject God. And it goes in the hands of a Gentile. One Gentile city, now a Gentile man. He's a Gittite. We know that Goliath was a Gittite from the town of Gath. So uh, most commentators would say that this guy, um, Obed-Edom, is also probably from Gath, a uh, Philistine city. So he's a Gentile, okay? And yet it's put under his care. Now, why would that be? Why would that be? I personally think we have a prophetic inference here um, that we see this, uh, we see this today. That one of the things that the Gentiles have been given have been given the grace of God. That we have been pulled into the family of God. For what reason? Well, we're told in Romans to provoke the children of Israel to jealousy. To jealousy. I'm sure that David was able to see how God has blessed Obed-Edom. And he says in verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God, because of the presence of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Why did he go get the ark? Because he saw what a blessing it was with Obed-Edom. That's why. And here's the thing. I've been around um, rabbis, people who are Jews. And when we go to Israel, um, I don't know if we made the mistake per se, but we sang the song in St. Anne's uh, Cathedral, um, Yahweh. 
And that was a big no-no to them. Because of how personal that name is. But see, for us, it's not a no-no to be able to do that. Why? Because Jesus dwells inside of us. We have this personal relationship where they look at and say, you cannot. He's too holy. He cannot dwell inside of you. You cannot utter his name like that. You cannot. Yes, we can. And they're jealous over that. They get angry over that. But that anger is really because of jealousy. We have a relationship that they don't. Because his presence is truly with us and in us. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so David wants what Obed-Edom has. And that's the way it should be when it comes to our Jewish brothers and sisters. That we should be living in the light of Jesus so much that they should see the joy of our salvation. That they will eventually be ministered to and that they will want what we have. And that is the very presence of of God. We have that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you can read about that in Romans 10 and Romans 11, how he, that's one of the reasons why he's, you know, um, uh, that Paul tells us uh, that the, the Jews themselves are going to be provoked over jealousy because of the grace that God has poured out on the Gentiles. And so we're one of the vehicles God is using to woo them back into the right relationship that they're supposed to have with God. And so, considering the outbreak of God's wrath against the people of Beth Shemesh, this tells me something else about the men of Kirjath-Jerim. That they would even consider bringing in the ark of God, the very presence of God. And it really tells me that these are very um, courageous men, uh, very courageous people, knowing what has just happened, and yet, Realizing, but we have the opportunity to have the presence of God. I think that speaks volumes of them. This reminds me of Moses in Exodus 33. Moses is being told by the angel, uh, being told by God that from here on out, an angel is going to lead him into the promised land. Moses, in Exodus 33, boldly replies to God, No, 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 I want you to lead us into the promised land. Moses knows his calling is still to lead the people to the promised land. However, God has told him in Exodus 33 that he's not going to go with him. Instead, he's going to send an angel to lead him. Whereas before, God had told Moses he was going to lead him into the land. Moses doesn't want any angel. Moses wants God himself to go with him. So Moses says, God, you have said that you know me by name and that I have found grace in your sight. So if that's true, then I pray you show me your way. You lead me, God, and remember this nation is your people. What's going on here is that God is saying things, presenting situations to Moses, and he does this all through the wilderness, in order to extract out of Moses the man of God that he wants him to be. So if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. But he just kind of throws a curveball there and says, I'm going to let an angel go from here on out. But God isn't really going to do that because God had already said he's going to do it. But it promotes a response from Moses. He wants to know where Moses is coming from here. And so Moses says, no, 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 I don't want to go unless you go. And, and here's the thing, not with me, but with us. And he becomes to be an intercessor. And he begins to pray and ask God to continue to go with them as, with them as a whole nation. Because 
Moses reminds God of this covenant promise that he has or he given. He's asking God to stay with him as a leader. And so God seems to hint, okay, I'll be with you, but not the whole nation. I'll go with you. And so Moses says, um, so God says, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And so Moses kind of says, well, wait a second. That's great. You're going with me, but you said you would go with us. And so he responds here and he says, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, even though he promised it'd go with him, if it does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so Moses' argument is, if you do not go up with all of us, then Israel will not be able to carry out its mission to the world where all nations will be able to see your glory in us, which tells me that Moses understood from the very beginning what this calling was supposed to be, that this special nation of Israel was to be a light to the whole world. Was to be a light to the whole world. And he knew it was God's plan to save the world that way. And the only way that that would happen was by having God at the center of everything that they were doing. And how would anyone else in the world know who, we, who he is if he is not with everyone what else will distinguish between us your people and from all other nations in the world and that's a good question and it's a question that um what is it that distinguish israelites from the other nations uh, of the world it wasn't their land because there's other nations that had greater amounts of land that they had it's not their wealth because there are other nations that were wealthier than them. And it was not their power because they were living in slavery there in Egypt. So there's nothing impressive about that. And it wasn't their righteousness because they couldn't even keep the most basic commandments as we saw as we go through the Exodus account. The only thing the Israelites had going for them was one thing. They had the presence of God. They had a relationship with God. And that is the only thing they had going for them. And to be quite honest, it is the only thing that anybody has going for them. Do you have a relationship with God? Well, no. But I have wealth. I have this. I have that. Well, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you have the absolute presence of God in you and with you wherever you go. That's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. And so what they had going for them was a relationship with God. And this is the great divide that runs down the center of the human race. On one side are the people who make their own way through this world. They rely on their own talents. They rely on pursuing their own goals. But God is not with them. God is not with them. On the other side are those who depend on God's grace, live for God's glory. God is with them and in them. God is everything to them. And what makes this distinction between those who have God and those who don't is the faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, um, this is the great dividing line. Some people have eternal life, some people don't. Some people have ultimate peace when they face suffering and death, and some people don't. The difference is, here, is that some people belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ, and others don't. And anyone who wants the comfort of God's presence can have it. There's no need to stay outside. All you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. And once you have faith in it, you have these promises from God. Matthew 28, 20 says, You teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
In Hebrews 13.5, the author tells us, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of God. We have his very presence with us at all times. Ephesians 3.17, And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We have him. We have the presence of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown? It is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so, as God's people, we should always want to be in the presence of God. But as God's people, we are always in the presence of God. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He is with us wherever we go. Going back here to 1 Samuel chapter 7. So we know a little something about kerjath Jerem. And these people there, they want the presence of God, which is pretty awesome. And so it says in verse 2, So it was that the ark remained in kerjath Jerem a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What this really means here is that from the time of the end of uh, chapter 6, and maybe that first verse of, of chapter 7, to the point where this uh, chapter really takes off in verse 3, 20 years have gone by. It doesn't mean that the ark was only in Kirjath-Jerim for 20 years. It just means up until this point, it's been there for 20 years. As a matter of fact, it stays there in that household for about almost 100 years. We know that um, when we look at the, the 20 years that it's already been in Abinadab's house, uh, that there is another 40 years of Saul's reign, another 7 years uh, in David's reign before he goes and gets it. So that's like 67 years. And we don't know exactly how long between verse 17 of chapter 7 and verse 1 of chapter 8. All we know is that there's been quite a bit of time that's gone by to the point where Samuel is now very old in verse 1 of chapter 8. Yet at the end of chapter 7, he wasn't very old. So we're talking, what, another 30 years between those verses? So we're talking like 97 years, almost 100 years that it's been in Abinadab's house. So, what was Dan, uh, Daniel, what was Samuel doing at this time? Verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, and uh, then put away foreign gods and asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now when Samuel speaks to the whole house of Israel... How does Samuel speak to the whole house of Israel? He doesn't have, you know, uh, he, he, he doesn't have broadband. He's not streaming anywhere. Uh, you know, he, he can't. It's taken him 20 years because at the end it tells the circuit that he goes on. Um, in verse 16 it says, He went from year to year on a circuit in Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all these places, but he always returned to Ramah. That's just some of the places he went. He was one of the first circuit riders one of the first circuit preachers, where he'd go from this township and tell them that they need to repent, go to this one, tell them they need to repent. Over 20 years, and not only to repent, but they need to put away the foreign gods. Not only put away the foreign gods, but here are God's laws. And he begins to teach them. It took 20 years of doing this. And as he did that for 20 years, it changed the hearts of the people. And he tells them what they need to do. They need to put away the foreign gods. The asterisk from among them. And he was teaching them this is a message of repentance. 
meaning you have to admit the direction you're going is wrong and there are things that you need to get rid of in your life and for them it was idolatry for them it was the foreign gods that they were worshiping there let nothing ever separate us Well, that's all we have time for today on this Wednesday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Tune in tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Samuel. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit with us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. on Saturday evenings, On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our Young Adults Ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Castle Rock. Child care is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station. For more information about us or this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. Thank you again for joining us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. And don't